good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm coming to you over EWTN Radio, and it's a pleasure to be with you today. On this particular program, for the long period of time, I've been inviting guests to come and talk about a verse they never saw. These are usually guests who had a deep love for Jesus Christ and loved the Scriptures and believed that the Bible and accepted the Bible as infallible, inspired the foundation for their faith, and then... For a great variety of reasons, they started discovering verses in the Bible they never saw. In other words, that either they ignored or they didn't interpret right or they didn't see or they had uh, looked at through their own set of glasses and so saw the scriptures in a different way. And then they began to see that uh, they may have not been seeing them as clearly or as correctly and so through a study. It brought them of the of that verse and others, as well as tradition and scripture and um, uh, and doctrine and history and theology and a great variety of other sources. They were drawn home to the church, home to the Catholic Church, and that's what this program's about. And our guest today, who's going to share his verse, is Ben Eicher. He's been a guest on the Journey Home program. If you go to ewtn.com and you and you Google his name on EWTN, you'll, sh- you'll see uh, the uh, <clears throat> program in which he joined me in the journey home if you want to hear his, the full expression of his journey into the church. Uh, Ben's bio is posted on the deepinscripture.com website, but let me read it to you briefly so you know about our guest today. Ben grew up in West Milford, New Jersey, the son of a Missouri Synod Lutheran pastor. And his study of the Lutheran faith showed him that many official Lutheran doctrines are, in fact, very Catholic. And in 1994, Ben was received into the Catholic Church. He currently lives in Rapid City, South Dakota, where he teaches a Bible study and CCD classes. On a professional note, from 2003 through 2005, Ben was the religion theology consultant for the Emmy-nominated CBS TV drama Joan of Arcadia. He is currently writing novels with uh, several new works, which is great to hear. I, boy, the more I hear about Catholics writing good fiction, is is just a real blessing. And so it's, I'm, I know, Ben, you can hear me, though you can't talk to me just yet. But, uh, you know, again, uh, all encouragement to you in your writing. If you're interested, you can go to deepinscripture.com and find out a lot more about our program. You can see Ben's photo and his bio and and all the archived deep in history, excuse me, deep in scripture programs, as well as how to get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to give us a call, do so at 800-664-5110. You can also call the regular Coming Home Network number 740-450-1175. Or you can send me an email, Marcus, M-A-R-C-U-S, at deepinscripture.com. If you send that during the program or call, we'll try and get your question on air. Now, Ben has chosen for the scriptures we'd like to look at today is actually a very appropriate verse to this time of year, uh, Luke 24. And actually, he's looking at the entire Emmaus Road experience that begins in Luke chapter 24, verse 13, all the way through verse through the end of the chapter, essentially. Um, <clears throat> but we're only going to read a couple of verses now just to give you the gist of the story. When Ben joins us, he may talk more about it. But this is one of the 
the most beautiful of the resurrection appearances of Jesus after he rose from the dead. Uh, this particular experience demonstrates uh, the mystery of Christ as well as the grace that he gives to open our eyes to actually hear him, to see him, to understand him. And without this, uh, it's difficult to truly understand our faith as well as its connection to the longer history of the Old Testament, to see the fulfillment of Scripture, the fulfillment of prophecy in Christ. And this particular story demonstrates that apart from grace, it's not always possible to add it all up. But when the Holy Spirit awakens us, opens our mind and our eyes to see the truth of the mysteries, then it all makes sense. And that's what this story is, is all about. I'll begin reading. I'll just read verse 15, 16, and then jump over to 27, 30, and 31. And uh, you'll hear, those of you that have heard this story will be reminded of the overall flow of this story, this encounter with the risen Christ. Verse 15. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And then verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Verse 30. And he was at table with them. He took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished out of their sight. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Next time on Life on the Rock. Throughout the centuries, music has played a great role in leading the faithful into the worship of God. Tune in when Aaron Thompson joins Doug and Father Mark to talk about Catholic music. That's on the next Life on the Rock, only on EWTN. Life on the Rock is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host today, and our guest has been uh, uh, Iker. Hello, Ben. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you. It's great to have you join us today. It's been a couple years since I had you on the, the Journey Home program. And uh, in fact, when you were on the Journey Home, you mentioned in the bio that you had been involved with the, the TV show. When you were on the program, that wasn't all that long after that program aired. Is that right? Well, uh, we I think I, I appeared at the end of January and um, uh, an episode that I received a story credit for was on a couple of weeks after that okay. and, and then we went to our inglorious end uh, <laughs> <laughs> despite all the awards yeah. the show had won 
uh, we were replaced by the Ghost Whisperer. Well, you know, it always makes me wonder uh, who sets the priorities for what they do decide to air, and and how does that all work out? I mean, uh, maybe you don't want to talk about it on air. Oh, no, that's fine. Uh, (laughs) They they go for a market, uh, a certain market age and market share of... uh, of uh, people that the advertisers will be happy with. The advertisers were very happy with um, Joan of Arcadia. We were recipients of um, mm-hmm. recipients of some family-friendly television uh, awards, uh, so forth and so on. And uh, they decided uh, CBS decided that uh, younger audience was what they were looking for, and and that they figured uh, young people want ghosts, not God. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all the bottom line is money, really. Yes. It's not the impact that you're actually trying to make on people's hearts and minds. It's it's whether it sells, right? That's it. Uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, that's not right in terms of correct, but that's just right in terms of what happened, sadly. And uh, I think it's the same thing is true that I know a lot of people are listening to us on, on Catholic radio and um, or maybe even satellite radio or, or through cable. And some argue, why can't we receive it in our area? And usually the reason is not because the local provider is either against what's in the program or not. They're just looking for the bottom line. Right. And uh, so somehow we got to convince them that good Catholic programming is better than those shopping channels, <laughs> <laughs> which is not always easy. Well, Ben, it's great to have you on the show. I did also mention, before we get into Scripture, your writing, and I, I do want you to tell the audience a little bit about your writing. Yes, um, I'm uh, in the midst of several novels. Uh, people say, well, why, are, why several? <laughs> and uh, it's when writer's block attacks. Yeah. You move to the other one, and you go back and forth. But I'm, I'm very excited about uh, oh, what I'm writing, and I've got a couple other things uh, back in mind as well. Very, they have a spiritual bent. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you write what you know and right. what you live, and hopefully uh, my, <laughs> my work will re- will reflect that. Uh, well, thanks a lot. I, uh, uh, would you say that your journey from Lutheranism into the Catholic faith affected influences both what you did for Joan of Arcadia as well as the writing you're doing now? Oh, absolutely, without question. Um, the, the journey itself has a certain power and drama to it. Um, one of the great things about your show uh, both the television show and the radio show, is to hear people's uh, stories. Uh, mm-hmm. The story of a journey, whether it's a Damascus Road story, which mine was not, <laughs> mine was an Emmaus Road story, um, in the sense of uh, you know the, the Damascus Road story being a, a great leap, um, whereas my leap um, was not as, not as far, and mm-hmm. I thank the Lord for that, um, and I marvel at those who make the greater leap. Uh, but there's plenty of drama in there, and, and one of the things that I find myself completely drawn to now, um, and Joan of Arcadia was absolutely of this type, mm-hmm. which was the notion that, that we're called to community, and we're called to a togetherness. Mm-hmm. And we live in a world that is so divisive, and we live in a world where division is sometimes trumpeted. Um, we certainly know from our scriptural study about uh, who's responsible for division. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, the whole idea 
of a return to Rome is a return to home. And whether we're prodigal children or whether we're even the, the child who's been there, just like in the parable of the prodigal son, which is also a parable of the prodigal son who didn't leave, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're all, we all have that dramatic um, uh, welcome or, or worry about those who are being welcomed. And we're all called to be that father who runs out and grabs and hugs and says, welcome. And so um, mm-hmm. my, my writing hopefully uh, picks up on that. We, we, need, we need that. We need mm-hmm. to understand um, how we benefit from community. And there's no bigger community um, and better community than the church, the universal church. And I, I'm one that... I think you and I are probably on the same page and and believe that fiction offers a, a special platform for the Holy Spirit to work in that way. You know, nonfiction, of course, is important. History, biographies, um, doctrine, uh, you, you know, catechisms are, are, of course, important to let us see exactly what's true. But sometimes fiction enables... Um, the, the platform, like the Emmaus Road story, to allow people who are on a journey, and they may not be able to put it all together, but to, to give information that the Holy Spirit can use to turn people's life. Oh, absolutely. The creative process, and especially when, when you are kind of forced to find a good metaphor and a, or a good allegory to use, and, um, and you know, it, it hones your, your, yourself as the writer, but you're also writing for someone, mm-hmm. um, and for hopefully more than just one. Uh, and so, yeah, all that uh, all that is brought brought forward. And and if you're open and to those uh, promptings of the spirit, um, you're better for it by a hundred miles. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, my my father, who uh, was not a practicing believer, I wasn't real sure where his heart was in relationship to God. Um, could not understand why I became Catholic, why I gave up my Protestant ministry to become Catholic. And I gave him all the nonfiction books I'd get my hands on. And he would say, thank you, and put them on the shelf, because he only read fiction. <laughs> oh. <laughs> he loved fiction. So that's why I wrote my book, How Firm a Foundation, was to use the platform of a fictional account to communicate the thinking that goes on in the minds of somebody who's on the journey. Yes. Uh, w- without just telling it all uh, in a didactic way to try and, and be as creative with the story. And, and that's what my book is. And that, that's why I'm so glad to hear that, that you're writing fiction, too. I, I think it's so, such an important arrow in the quiver uh, of evangelization. You chose Luke 24, the Emmaus Road. Now, you say you were an Emmaus Road uh, journeyman. Is that why you chose this verse uh, as an important one for you to talk about? Yeah, two, two reasons, basically. Um, one of them was when posed with the question, what verse you know, didn't you see before that you mm-hmm. saw? And my answer is, all of them. <laughs> and <laughs> kind of, and I, I know that sounds semi-facetious, but it's really kind of not. Um, but also uh, the, the notion that um, uh, so, so many of us see the, uh, a conversion story or, or a convert kind of um, a situation as being one of extremes, and it's not always that. 
and I, I think that's important, at least it was for me, because we're so often left with the idea that, well, you're over here, that's fine. We don't strive for the completeness. Uh, it's sort of like, that's good enough. You're hmm. close enough. Where you are is okay enough. And um, where the Emmaus Road account is so great is these are disciples. These are disciples who were so sure of their knowledge of the Lord and had you know, been, had been around him and, and had seen and heard, and yet you know, they, were, they couldn't recognize him physically and, and more, uh, despite uh, that knowledge. And it was, you have this situation where the Lord gives them a Bible study. He says, from Moses through the prophets to up to himself. <laughs> uh, obviously, uh, I think most people would agree, the greatest Bible study that's ever been given <laughs> before or since. You wish and, they had taken more notes. Yes. <laughs> and yet, their eyes were not open. Yeah. Um, it was when he broke the bread. It's when, through the Eucharist, their eyes were opened. And it's not... It's not a Eucharist versus Bible. We see so much of that, unfortunately, um, on the outside of Catholicism, and I deal with a lot of non-Catholic friends um, who love the Lord. And you know, that's the other thing about the Emmaus Road story. It's not about, well, you don't love the Lord, therefore, if you're not within the Church. No, you're, you're, you do love the Lord, but there's a road, a path, a journey, an ongoing thing. And that ongoing thing, always we have to be open to the continual gaining of, the, of knowledge and the promptings of the Spirit. And therefore, as, as this road is going, you know, um, for me it was, it was okay, I, 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 I don't see that there's anything more that I don't know or didn't, didn't <laughs> know. I wasn't unhappy as a Lutheran. I, I was very, very lucky. Um, that my father was uh, not only a Lutheran pastor, but a very, quote, Catholic Lutheran pastor. In fact, um, he was frequently <laughs> called a too Catholic. Um, his classmates in the seminary were Richard John Newhouse, yeah. Robert Louis Wilkin. Um, you know, so these are two... Those are, just for the audience, those are uh, two very well-known Lutheran converts to the Catholic faith. Um uh, Father Newhouse passed away just a few years ago, right. and uh, uh, but they are very influential in open up, opening up the eyes of many Lutherans, at least, to the uh, uh, to the, the truth of the Catholic faith. Yes, and Newhouse's book, uh, you know, the Catholic moment. Mm -hmm. um, I, I remember when it came out, and I remember thinking to myself, "Wow, that's weird." Uh, we're not like in bizarre weird, but just like wow, that's that's, that's diff I didn't uh, understand uh, what he what he was really meaning at the time without reading the book, just seeing the the title. My father and um, then Pastor Newhouse had had together uh, done some ecumenical work in New Jersey and New New York uh, with with uh, Catholic parishes, and so again, I was uh, my. My road was not a great leap. Um, I recall in 1967, my father was um, part of a, a, a joint 
Lutheran uh, Catholic celebration in Wayne, New Jersey, at a Catholic church. And I remember as an eight-year-old saying, why are we going to a Catholic church? <laughs> and my dad saying, someday we'll all be Catholic, oh. Roman Catholic. Um, and that was something in, in, in my upbringing was a goal. Um, the only argument was when, you know, that kind of thing. So I didn't grow up with an antipathy that I understood, that at least I, that I realized. Only later did I realize there was more there, uh, unfortunately, that, that uh, I didn't or wasn't seeing. Mm-hmm. At first. In fact, I'm wondering if that connects in that sense with our verse. Um, ben, talk a bit. What, what was it in your perspective that stood in the way or was wrong with the viewpoint of the two on the road. It says in verse 16 that their eyes were kept from recognizing him, so it, it, that kind of implies that that God was the guilty one, you know. It, it's almost like in the Old Testament when Pharaoh is... Uh, right, the hard know, heart. The hard heart. Was it God's fault or Pharaoh's fault? So it's a mystery there. But, but what was it, do you think, that kept them from seeing Jesus? Well... Um, the way the way that I look at it is there's there's a certain uh, uh, psychology that that one gains that that um, that that will block you unknowingly from from a fullness. Uh, I, when when I teach my Bible study classes, I I, I bring up a blue blocker sunglasses. Um, I yeah. own a pair of blue blocker sunglasses. You put them on, it blocks out blue rays. As long as you're wearing those glasses, there's no way you can see blue rays, period. You can know that they're out there, mm-hmm. but you can't see them. And then when you can't see them, you almost forget that they do exist. You take the blue blockers off, and then you can finally see the, the blue rays, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And when, when we sometimes bring our disappointments or our upbringings um, or, or our formations, <clears throat> for me as a Lutheran, it was a very very Lutheran formation. Um, despite my father being considered too Catholic, it was very Lutheran. Mm-hmm. And um, you're, you're unable sometimes to see what's right in front of you because of that formation, necessarily. And you're ready to discount. Um, uh, the, you know, they, they had seen the Lord die, uh, or they had known of the Lord dying, and even though... The word should have been echoing in their ears about his, his return, his resurrection. The disappointment, the despair, um, you know, is there and is, is blocking us. Uh, or the truth is, is what you've been told. This is as much as the truth goes, and you don't know that there's more doors to open. And until something occurs, uh, it doesn't have to be experiential. Um, but whatever that is, or that openness, or taking those blue blockers off, and all of a sudden what's been there, uh, it just jumps at you. I, I have Pentecostal friends who, who, you know, when we start reading Colossians, and they see the, the Colossians chapter uh, uh, 2, I believe, where it's talking about, um, I think it's verse 11, about baptism as you know, that new circumcision, mm-hmm. and the idea that circumcision was the entry as an infant into the family of God, and that, that's, it, see, to see that tie and have people say, I've never seen that before. Mm-hmm. Or when it's the visitation where Mary uh, visits Elizabeth and the babe in Elizabeth's womb leaps 
and the automatic is, well, he's leaping at Jesus, because it can't be leaping at anything else. It just can't, it can't, it can't. Oh, it's, it's leaping because Mary's there. <laughs> and like, like there's some competition. Um, but when you open yourself up and you say, no, let's, don't, don't worry about it. Just, it's not a negation. And things just open. And so with the Eucharist especially, my, my goodness, I mean, obviously with John chapter 6, with the Bread of Life Discourse, those people had witnessed miracles just <laughs> on the other side of the lake. <laughs> and they could not handle those harsh words. These are hard words, we can't deal with them. And so they left. They left over the Eucharist. And here we have the opening of the eyes over the Eucharist. Ben, let's pause there. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to pick up on that because you're making a very important point. We we uh, we can be blind to our own blindness. And what is it that is necessary to break free so that we can see the fullness of what God wants for us? We'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodo. I am joined today by Ben Eicher, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. Don't miss the good fight on Saturday. Our saint is St. Francis of Rome, and our future saint is Jennifer Fulweiler, a former pro-choice atheist, now wife, mother, believer, and master blogger. That's The Good Fight, Saturday, 2 p.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. The Good Fight comes to you live each Saturday, only on EWTN Radio. For times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined today by Ben Eicher. Just want to remind you that next week on Deep in Scripture, we'll have Gail Buckley joining us. She was a, a former guest on the Journey Home program, and she'll be on this program next Wednesday, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time on EWN Radio. So please be sure to join us. Ben, um, recently I was noticing on television that one there was a, an advertisement for a luxury car that uh, has all these amazing new contraptions, abilities to do all kinds of things that we never even thought we wanted, you know. Uh, but one of the things this particular car has that no other car has ever had, apparently, is a blind side warning light. Uh, in other words, you know, there's that place in the car that you just can't normally see when you're sitting there, and there's some kind of little warning light that goes off to... Uh, make you aware of your blind side. And I was just jokingly thinking, well, if it happened to catch into how all of our blind sides that a warning would be going off all the time every time we got into the car. Right. Because we, we really have so many blind sides in our life. And in this particular case, all that they had ever learned, all that they had ever known and been taught, their whole culture, everything had conditioned them to think in a certain direction. And Jesus is going counter to that. 
And there's a sense in which in their own mind they didn't even have the categories or maybe the file folder to put this new stuff in. So either they just didn't see it or they wanted to back off from it, right? Oh, absolutely. That is so right. And, uh, and that's true of all of us. That's true of all of us. What about that? Now, let's push it to God's side of this equation. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. What, what do you see about God's place in this, in the mystery, even in your own journey? Well, you mentioned uh, uh, the, how you know, the Pharaoh's, eye, uh, Pharaoh's hard, uh, heart, and it was hardened by God. And, and that comes up uh, whenever mm-hmm. um, I, I teach you know, Exodus, one of the questions, well, wait a minute, that's not fair. Uh, why didn't God unharden his heart? Um, and, uh, you know, obviously it, uh, Christian um, theology post-Reformation has, has had lots of answers for, you know, depending on where you're, whether you're a really hard Calvinist or, a, um, right. you know, ver- various ways of whether or not free will is involved and so forth. Um, God wants us to search out. Um, God, you know, one of the, one of the problems that we run into in a kind of a hermeneutic about about the Bible is those who want the Bible to be that that um, uh, how-to book where everything is answered absolutely specifically. Um, where you know where you run into extreme fundamentalism, or on one end, or you run into there's nothing but symbol and poetry on the other, and this idea that it's uh, that that somehow that somehow we're we're limited um, to to it's it's self-explanatory or else, and God wants us on that road. He wants us. Uh, he he wants us to go to the church. Yeah. And he wants us for that community. And if we go to that community and we, we, we require the sacraments, and the sacraments are not just something we do for, for the sake of it, and he leads us home, provides us the path, the Holy Spirit moves in us, and we have to understand very quickly that we are not the uh, ones with the answers. Yeah, in fact, I, I, I was... Thinking of of um, of this in, in another perspective, because you mentioned community, that we're brought into this community, and we live in a country where, from the founding of this country, um, not so much from the 1600s, but from the late 1700s and the 1800s, and, and that it's been all about individualism. Yes. And it's in a certain sense, difficult. I can't speak for anybody but myself. And I know you're not guilty of this, Ben. But it's. Di- I think it's difficult for Americans to not have a subtle idea that this whole thing is about me. Oh, gosh, yes. Oh, boy, you hit that About nail. me. And so when we see this verse, but, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him, our first reaction is, how dare God do that to these individuals? <laughs> right. You know, or, or Pharaoh's heart is hardened. How dare God do that to him? Mm-hmm. Rather than seeing that the story was not about Pharaoh, the story is not about these two along the road, God sees things in a much bigger picture and his mercy is bigger than we can ever imagine. 
I mean, the, the mercy that was shown in the Exodus, not just for the Egyptians, but even for those that God brought home. Right. You know, the, the firstborns. The God has a mercy with the firstborns who were punished as a result of Pharaoh's disobedience. Uh, so in this thing, we see the mercy that God is showing by holding off their ability to see for a time. Because it wasn't about them, right? Right, right. Exactly. You are so right. Uh, I, we run into this so often with um, outside the Catholic Church with the disintegration of Protestantism slash Evangelicalism, yeah. um, where uh, an ox gets gored and a new church is formed. <laughs> um, uh, or, um, you know, the, the idea that that is the search is to find a church that fits my idea. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or even the notion, um, and not Lutheranism obviously is not known for, uh, it doesn't have a, a rapture theology to it, or a, uh, that kind of a date setting kind of, you know, Jesus is returning on March 15th of, you know, whatever um, kind of thing. But mm-hmm. um, since I've become Catholic and doing Bible studies, I've, rubbed elbows with, with some people who have those bents, and, and it's interesting to hear them talk, because one of the things that seems to reverberate is, of course Jesus is coming back during my life. <laughs> and this, this really this idea that it's about me, yeah. and, and I don't need a church. We hear commercials all the time out here in South Dakota, new church pops up, and one of the things that they pitch as a marketing strategy is, aren't you glad you come here, you're not in church? idea is it's just me and God, me and God, me and God. It's not about church, it's not about religion, it's not about rituals and, and right. all of that. It's just about your relationship. And, you know, I remember, Ben, did you happen to see the movie about Luther that came out a couple years ago? Yeah, I did. And uh, actually, I had to go to it twice in a row just to make sure that I wasn't <laughs> reading into it. But what I found it very interesting, even though the movie, I think, had been partially sponsored by Lutherans, yes. that from the time Luther burns the, uh, you know, the edict against him, right. for the rest of the entire movie, you never see Luther anywhere near any church, mm-hmm. and which I don't think Lutherans want in any way to imply. I but, would hope not. But it comes across with this idea that when he left the Catholic Church, he left the idea of church yes. altogether. Coming across with this, again, this individualistic idea. And, uh, and, and okay, there's a blind, how do we get people to break from that blindness? Well, I, I know um, with, with my, uh, my teaching out here, um, we had uh, one year I was approached by the cathedral to to lead a post-confirmation class. It was a, oh, uh, yeah. an, uh, a, a volunteers, and they weren't required, obviously, but the, you know, trying to instill the idea that, number one, confirmation is not a graduation out of. It's a graduation into, <laughs> into the life of the Church as, a, as an adult. But um, I, I decided, they left it up to me, and I decided we wanted to study liturgy. And I thought the best way for them to study liturgy um, go to Mass on Saturday night, and then Sunday we would go to different other churches, <laughs> churches. And what I wanted to impress upon these young people was what they weren't seeing, and leaving 
that to them. Uh-huh. And was, we went, and then we would gather for lunch, and, and they talked about what they didn't see. Wow, we went there, and there was no altar. Yeah. Uh, there was no cross, literally. They, this place was called, uh, you know, um, Open Bible, and they never, they didn't open the Bible. <laughs> um, they sang these songs about standing and kneeling, and we stand and kneel, and they didn't. Uh, you know, so they started to see things <laughs> that they were that they found that they didn't realize they were blessed by and, and with, and it gave them, I think, a, a sense of tradition. Because one of the things about community is also a sense of tradition, and that goes to authority, I think, anyway. Because if we if we believe that we can rewrite, whether it's theology or history or whatever, because you know it's it's an open book, it's a tabula rasa. Um, you know, which kind of happened in, in the Reformation, which was, ah, fine, now we can just chuck mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. and start over. It, it, let's chuck, you know, the book of James out. Well, maybe we better not. Well, what about Hebrews? Uh, uh, how about these other seven books in the Old Testament? All right, let's get rid of those. And, and so everything becomes subject to my own judgment or my own whim, as if there wasn't this tradition and history. And of course, as Catholics, we have the church militant, the church suffering, the church triumphant. Mm-hmm. And we see those as not dead people. People say, why do you pray to dead people? Well, they're not dead, for one thing. Very much alive and very much in a better place. And we pray you know, through them. Uh, they're helpful, just like we're helpful in our communities here. But in America, we've been taught two things mainly that I think hurt uh, peop- non-Catholics' concepts of Catholicism. One is this idea of individualism, uh, of you know, trumpeting individualism over those who are not part of the group, so to speak. And the other is we've lost the sense of royalty. I'm not certainly mm-hmm. not suggesting we start crowning kings, but we, you know, the Lord yeah. is king, yeah. and this is his kingdom. And outside of Catholicism, of course, the idea is, no, no, there's no kingdom. The kingdom isn't here. It's not here in any way, shape, or form. Um, and that you've really touched on an, an, a key American idea yeah. that was, uh, in many ways, introduced during the Revolution. Uh, we're, we're very comfortable calling people Mr. and Mrs. and Miss, and that's it. What else in our culture do we call people? We don't call them Earl, Duke, Lord, um, Esquire. All of these titles were thrown out. Now, France went a little bit farther. They talked about citizen and citizeness. But in our country, Mr., Mrs., Miss, um, that's it. We're all equal. And and with that, as you're saying, came even the the idea of the egalitarian of everyone, including ourselves with God. Yes. Uh, the you know it's it's difficult for for someone outside of the Catholic Church sometimes to say uh, to see why you would want to especially if you love the Lord and you believe you love the Lord to the fullness of not only spirit but also truth because the Lord wants us to worship Him in spirit and truth and so the idea that doctrine is simply a a, a problem uh, of course is is not is not even biblical um, but. This, this notion that there's a, you know, a guy in Rome, um, he wears a big hat, and you know we have to sort of obey him. You know that's 
it, in their minds is like, well, why, that's just against every single American thing, um, you know. And um, you know, it's it's, yep. it's un, not in, unusual. There, therefore, when we see that so much of evangelical Christianity arises out of very American things, uh, whether it be dust bowls or Western New York in the 1830s and 40s, or Appalachia, things that are very, very just uh, where people feel that they're that they are separated. I mean, even right now, you can't turn to any news uh, outlet and and miss the fact that all around the world right now, the Pope is being attacked and blamed uh, for the the few number of priests around the world that you know that were. Uh, uh, disobedient to their vows, right? And uh, but the Pope is being blamed for that. In fact, I even heard threats that he's going to be uh, arrested when he goes into I England. Saw that you know? too. You know, and all that stuff. And and really, truly thinking people recognize that the Pope is not to blame for the small numbers of that have been so disobedient. It's amazing that the same news media ignore the problems of the same problem in the education system and, and in other, but they're going to attack the Pope. Right. Because in attacking the Pope, they're attacking the church, and attacking the church, they're actually attacking God. They're attacking anyone that has any uh, audacity to tell them how they are to live their lives. Right. And, you know, when Jesus said to, to Peter, uh, you know, the gates of hell will not prevail against the yeah. church, uh, I think the message was the gates of hell are going to try. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah. And it's going to be ongoing, and um, and it is unfortunate. And because again, the Catholic Church is the is the is the sleeping giant, so to speak. You can poke the stick, you know, at God the same way. You know, you can poke God all you want, and God doesn't do anything back to you, kind of thing. Um, there were two really, really good books that came out a couple of years ago, almost with identical titles: um, uh, Anti-Catholicism, The Last Great American Prejudice. And here in, in South Dakota, for instance, we have um, a couple famous photographs for us out here anyway of the Ku Klux Klan marching down um, our sort of main street in Rapid City in the 1920s. Almost every town in South Dakota had a Klan in the 1920s. In my, um, where I went to high school in Crawford, Nebraska, uh, a number of years ago, they found the, the, the Ku Klux Klan meeting notes and everything else. Hmm. Well. Who were they attacking? They were attacking Catholics, yeah. uh, immigrants, uh, those Italians, those Irish. Uh, they were burning crosses on the convent lawn, and it was—I uh, believe uh, it was—I think it was the Methodist minister who was leading them. Mm. Unfortunately, mm. you know, and and it was a it was a it was a Catholic. The Catholics were the other, um, <laughs> and we see that even too with modern viewpoints of the one world order, or, or you know the. Evangelicals who believe the Revelation is teaching that you know the Catholic Church is the whore of Babylon and or the beast of Revelation, and they you know the Pope wants to put everybody under one world religion, and so therefore Jesus's prayer for unity, visible unity of John 17, becomes you know you can't you can't read it that way because it would defeat the um, the theology, and that's you know when I when I was so lucky to have Tim Gray at the EWTN shows. Oh, yeah. Um, he was my Bible study teacher here in Rapid City. I was so lucky. <laughs> my bishop was Charles Chaput. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was just so lucky. And um, 
and I remember in Tim Gray's Bible study, my eyes just opening, my ears just opening to all of this, and not realizing, or you know, all of a sudden realizing, I guess, that I hadn't seen stuff that mm-hmm. was right there in front of me, and not just like it's, uh, if, you know, not not forgetting my Lutheran background and not not spurning it, but growing through through it and from it, and I. And you and I both share that, that yeah. we're grateful because we were brought to Christ by our Lutheran pastors and friends and and even our evangelical friends. Yeah. Rec- they were recognizing in evangelicalism for a call to for people to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We're recognizing this need of surrender. So, I mean, we're on the same page there. But even in this passage, and we're going to take a break when I get back, I'd like you to talk about the, the place of the Eucharist You're right. in opening up their eyes as well as your own and your journey. Let's talk about that when we get back. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and my guest is Ben Eicher, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. The Coming Home Network International and Marcus Grodi invite you to join us for our 8th Annual Deep in History Conference coming this fall to Columbus, Ohio. This year, our focus will be on the authenticity of the sacred scriptures as we ask, how firm is your foundation? Join us the weekend of October 22nd as we bring together another exciting list of guest speakers. For more information, go to deepinhistory.com or call us at 800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. Our guest today is Ben Eicher, and um, I'd love to talk about a lot of angles of this, Ben, but this passage certainly brings us to the, the key aspect of the Eucharist for ways that God used to open our eyes. Was that true in your own life as well as it was for the, the two men in this story? Yes, uh, yeah, yes, it was in, um, in, a, in a kind of a flowering way uh, rather than a, um, an oh my Lord kind of mm-hmm. way. It, um, that differs, like for instance, have Scott Hahn, his experience was yeah. <laughs> or more of that kind of way. Uh, my father was as a, as a Lutheran pastor, um, had uh, had studied under Arthur Carl Peepcorn, who yes, um, you know, was a major major influence on on a, a, an evangelical Catholic idea of of Lutheran, Missouri Synod Lutheranism, and and I. Um, so in, in in our in our home in our in our parish, my father was the founder of the uh, the Eucharist. It was every week, which was it, he got in trouble for. He got called to New York, got dressed down for that. Um, there was all this year too Catholic. Um, so there was 
a high praise for the for the Holy Communion. And when I started to um, uh, find myself in the, in the Tim Gray Bible studies, and all of a sudden I'm I'm seeing a greater flowering of the Eucharist, the the the, the body and blood of Christ, um, beyond just a reception, uh, but not like the reception is wrong, bad, obviously not. Uh, but the idea that this is this is truly the Lord, in a way that I hadn't. It was more the ritual of the reception, as opposed to the reception and. Now, it's, I'm not trying to make a, uh, a cast an aspersion on, on Lutheran doctrine, but just to say that, as a Catholic, even even as 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 great a uh, Holy Communion guy that I thought I was, John six became alive. Mm. This scripture reading of, of Emmaus, where their eyes were open, not just they did it because the Lord instructed them to do it, but what did it do? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, whether it's you know also adoration uh, of, of the Blessed Sacrament, prayer time in front of the Blessed Sacrament, and so forth. And then uh, just on, on a little more social note, um, uh my father, when he was a vicar down in, in a southern uh, town, um, caused a, a, it was a segregated Lutheran parish. And he made a big fuss about that and kind of got in trouble <laughs> as to why there was a black, black Lutherans and white Lutherans were not communing together. And, and I teased uh, Richard Newhouse about this uh, not uh, too many years before he passed away. I had found, my father saved everything, and he had saved one, one then Pastor Newhouse was installed in Brooklyn, St. John the Divine, I believe it was. And it said right in the cut line under the photograph that the communion rail will be open to black people, black Lutherans, and white Lutherans. And so the idea that the Eucharist brings us together, mm-hmm. despite our divisions that aren't family divisions, because that's the family meal. And the family meal of of Jesus giving Himself to us um, in, in this profound sacrifice. You know, just uh, just this morning, uh, I happened to be reading in Exodus, and uh, the the passage that that uh, I found interesting. Again, was it a verse I never saw? At least one that never made sense to me before. But in Exodus chapter 12, when God is giving his description to Moses and Aaron about the Passover and how it is to be separated, uh, celebrated, excuse me, in verse 48 of chapter 12, he says, after he describes who can receive the lamb, he says, but no uncircumcised person, person shall eat of it. So when you look at that in the big context of the flow of the people of God, that for the Passover, you could not eat of the lamb, you could not eat of the celebration year after year after year as they celebrated if you were not a part of the body. Yes. And that had to do with circumcision. And when you see the continuity, as you mentioned earlier, of circumcision being replaced by baptism, which enters you into the body, then it makes sense that you don't receive the Eucharist unless you're authentically a part of the body. 
Yes, that is, you, you've really hit on a great thing right there. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and, you know, people see, oh, gosh, I'm not going to that church. They don't let me receive the Eucharist, as if, again, they have a right to. There's mm-hmm. that, that whole thing about it's my right um, uh, and so forth. And um, where you ha- Or dissident Catholics who want to just strip it of, of any of its um, reality. Or even those who would say, well, I've been baptized, therefore, why can't I? Well, again, that's, that's missing the point of baptism. It's not some magical little exactly. uh, you know, event that happened and then you've arrived. No, it, it's a surrender of all that you are. A person who got circumcised when they're an adult, that was a pretty major sacrifice. Well, you know, the sacrifice we make in accepting Christ in his fullness is an important aspect of being therefore to receive this great privilege of the Eucharist. In, in the last verse, we're running out of time, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and then he vanished. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think about the importance of the vanishing out of their sight? Well, I think, to me, uh, it, to, to me, it, that and what happens when he enters the, the, uh, the upper room, mm-hmm. and Thomas is able to physically put his you know, hands yep. into those spots. So in other words, Jesus' body is not, uh, it's not a, a vision. But yet, it's not bound by time and space. But yet, it's still corporeal in, in some sense. And if you take that to the Eucharist, that's exactly what we say about, you know, how is it that this, what I'm, you know, taking into my mouth, looks like, tastes like one thing, but it's not. This concept yeah. that, that Jesus is there in, in a real way, not symbolically, not a vision, not seems like, really is there, and yet it's miraculous and glorified. Yeah, you see this, you know, he, he, he's at the table, he takes the bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, he gives it to them, their eyes are open, they recognize him, and then he's gone. You know, it's, it's as if his, his focus is saying, here you are, I am with you forever, and he's shown us how in the Eucharist. Yes. Uh, ben, time flies. It's great having you on the program. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for the honor. We're looking forward to see your name on some books coming out soon, right? Me too. (laughs) All right, my friend. God bless you. Thank you for joining us. And all of you, I hope this has been encouragement to you. In what ways are our eyes blinded from seeing the fullness of Jesus? It could be whatever traditions we bring with us, you know, prejudices, a variety of things. But look to him, especially as Ben's been pointing, look to Scripture and really see a fullness that he desires you to have in the midst of the sacred tradition of his church. God bless you. See you again next week.